Good morning, brothers and sisters. This morning's text comes from the gospel according to Mark in chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. These are the words of God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. These are the words of God. Church, you may be seated. Let's go to our God and Father in prayer together. Holy Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning, drawing near, falling down in humble adoration of who you are, in awe of your majesty, your glory, your holiness, and the mercy that you have shown us, O God, in Christ. That you have made it possible for us, fallen sons and daughters of Adam, to draw near to you, to call you our Abba Father in heaven. What a privilege it is that you have given us to assemble on this Sabbath day to offer up worship to you. Lord, we pray that the worship that we have been offering and that we will continue to offer up to you this morning would be done in spirit and in truth that it would ascend before your throne as a pleasing fragrance to you. Oh God, we are grateful for our church. We are grateful for one another. We are grateful for the reconciliation that we have with you in Christ and for the reconciliation that we have with one another in Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless this time of worship We pray that you would bless the worship service of our brothers and sisters who are gathering down on Highway 163 at North Beaver Baptist Church. Oh God, be with them as the word is proclaimed. 
as they sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as they pray to you, O Lord, would you glorify yourself in and through that body? Father, we give thanks to you for answering um, our prayer that we lifted up to you last week regarding our sister Kimberly's father and that he has seen improvement and that he has been able to go home. Lord, we pray that you would continue that recovery and healing process and that you would bless the time that Sister Kimberly has with him tomorrow as she visits him and encourages him after his stay in the hospital with his infection. Father, we pray for our Pastor Scott and for our sister Alyssa as they are out in California right now. We pray that um, you would give them safe travels back home to us. Thank you for the time that they've been able to spend with family and missionaries out there. We pray that you would um, continue um, to um, glorify yourself in each one of their lives. And Father, this morning, we come before your throne and we lift up the people of Ukraine to you. Oh Lord, many of us, probably thought that we would never see war on the continent of Europe as was seen in World War II, but we have seen those images on our TV screens and on the internet this past week. Father, it is hard to see. It's difficult for us to think about the pain and the suffering that so many people are being subjected to right now in Ukraine. And yet, Father, we know that even this is not outside of your sovereign control. And so, God, we pray that you would please have mercy upon the Ukrainian people. Father, show your kindness to them. We pray that you would not allow their nation and their freedom to be taken away from them. Lord, would you protect them? Would you sustain them? Oh God, break the bow, bend the spear. We pray that you would tell this war to cease. Help President Zelensky as he seeks to lead his people through this scary time. Father, we pray for President Putin of Russia that you would grant repentance to him. That he would stop this onslaught of wickedness that he has unleashed against this nation unprovoked. Oh God, that you would turn back the Russian armies and that all this violence, this bloodshed would come to an end. Father, through our brother Justin and our sister Leanne, I believe many of us feel as if our church has a connection to the nation of Ukraine, and so our hearts are heavy in many ways for them. We pray for your church there, that you would help our brothers and sisters to endure. Oh God, that you would protect them, that they would be encouraged, that they would not be afraid, and that they would trust you, that they would continue to look to Christ. Father, we lift up Karina to you. We pray that you would keep her safe through all this and that you would use these circumstances, as harrowing as they are, as a means to draw her and her wayward heart to Christ. 
Father, we lift this all up to you, knowing that you are good and that you will do right. Father, help our own leaders in the United States, President Biden and everyone else. Give them um, good knowledge and wisdom as they seek to discern how best to respond in that situation as well. Father, help them to govern our people justly and righteously as well. And Father, finally, we ask for your blessings upon our time in your word. We are grateful, O Lord our God, that you have revealed yourself through your word. We ask now for your Spirit's help as we search the Scriptures. Oh God, would you speak to us today? And we ask all of this in the name of our King, the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you familiar with the concept of crescendo? In music, when a piece crescendos, it reaches its loudest point. But it doesn't start that way, it builds up to it. It starts off, it's a gradual process, it's softer, and then it develops and grows into its pinnacle. Consider, for example, the masterful transition from the third to the fourth movement in Ludwig van Beethoven's Symphony No. 5. You know that expression, it's all led to this. Well, that's what, in a sense, crescendo is. When it's done well, it's beautiful, it's satisfying, and it's chill-inducing. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the things that comes to my mind when I consider how Mark began his book. Perhaps you'll remember chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have seen Have we not, throughout these last couple of years that we have walked through Mark together, Mark showing us encounter after encounter, miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, demonstrating clearly and powerfully that that this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Son of God. This turn of events, as we have been reminded in recent weeks, as Jesus has been preparing to be murdered by wicked men, this wasn't a surprise to him. This was not an unforeseen development. This is precisely why he came. Our Lord Jesus himself told his disciples back in chapter 10 that for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many times now he has been telling the twelve that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. He's been saying this. It's been a constant drumbeat over and over, and we almost find ourselves getting frustrated with the disciples. Like, how can you guys not get this? 
But everything Jesus has done, every act of love, every act of obedience to his beloved Father has crescendoed, built up, and developed to this moment that we read about this morning. Indeed, Mark's gospel has crescendoed to this moment. And when we take an even larger view of this, we realize that all of history was developing and leading up and crescendoing to this day in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It was all building up to the bruising of the heel of the woman, of the seed of the woman from Genesis 3 the crushing of Isaiah's righteous servant, the cutting off of Daniel's anointed prince. Redemptive history had been building up to the slaughter of the spotless lamb of God. Can any of our praise, can any of our songs, can any treatise by the most learned theologian truly do justice to this incredible act of self-sacrificial love? No. It's too wonderful, beloved. It will take us an eternity to give praise to Christ for what he has done and what a blessed eternity that will be. This sermon, dear church, despite my best efforts, won't do justice to the passion of Christ and to the enormous weight and glory of what he has done for us. And yet, it is my sincere hope this morning and my prayer that this exposition of our God's word would be used by our God's Holy Spirit to draw all of our hearts and minds closer to Christ, to increase our love for him and to behold him as the only one who is worthy of our absolute allegiance and devotion. Shall we continue into the text? I invite you to look with me at verse 21. Mark writes that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So immediately, we are reminded of the pain and the abuse that the Lord Jesus has already endured before the crucifixion. The torture, the mockery, the beatings have taken their toll on the Lord's suffering servant. So much so that the Roman soldiers don't believe that he'll be able to make it to Calvary. So they enlist this Simon of Cyrene fellow to take up the heavy burden of the cross and to take it to the place of the skull because they don't think that this poor, frail man will be able to make it there before he dies. Interestingly, Mark is the only gospel writer to identify Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. So naturally, we'll ask the question, who are Alexander and Rufus? Well, we aren't certain who they are, but their mention here has led many um, commentators and theologians throughout the centuries to conclude that they were well-known members of the church in Rome. Perhaps you'll remember from the early sermons in this series that most believe that the gospel of Mark's first audience 
was the church in Rome. And if that is indeed the case, it's possible that this Rufus is the same Rufus that Paul mentions as a member of the church in Rome in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. And if that indeed is the case, we realize that Mark is essentially saying to the church in Rome, you know those two brothers who are members of your church? Their father carried Jesus' cross. Now, I think spending a few moments on details like this are helpful because it forces us to think about and remember that the people that we read about in the Scripture were real people who had relationships with other real people and told those other people about their experiences and the things that they saw. Would this have been something that Simon of Cyrene often thought about? Would it have been an action that looking back years later made him feel proud or did it make him feel ashamed? Was he even a believer? I think that taking a moment to think about an ordinary guy who's here in Jerusalem getting caught up in this plan of redemption is helpful for us because it makes us grateful, I think, that likewise we ordinary people, sinful people, have likewise been caught up into God's plan of redemption as objects of God's mercy. And it helps us to remember just how tangible these events were to the people who first received the New Testament books. They had the ability to talk to people who witnessed Jesus' life, death, and indeed His resurrection as well. It was that close for them. Alexander and Rufus could have talked to their own father and have heard a first-hand account of Jesus's passion. And that passion, of course, reached its climax at Calvary, which brings us to verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. So Jesus, Simon of Cyrene, the Roman soldiers, and the crowds arrive at this ghastly location outside the city gates to commence Jesus' execution. There's actually some debate about what exactly the name place of a skull denotes. I believe the most likely reason that this name developed was because this association or this location, rather, was associated with death. If this was indeed a customary place where the Romans erected crosses and executed prisoners, it would have come to have developed over time all the connotations of suffering, anguish, killing. It's very dark in a way, but in another way perhaps it seems appropriate. Perhaps we can see the name as quite fitting, seeing as this is the place where the seed of the woman would crush the head or the skull, if you will, of the serpent. He would accomplish this by offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. 
destroying the works of that old serpent from the garden, the devil. Therefore, it's fitting also that Jesus gave his life outside the city. In Exodus 29, the law of Moses says, the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. And notice why it says that's the case. It is a sin offering. The writer to the Hebrews draws this connection when he says the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. The blood of the sin offerings presented in the temple could only purify the flesh. They could not purify the conscience. And they needed to be repeated year after year after year after year. An endless stream of the blood of animals pouring forth from the altar. But the precious blood of Jesus does purify completely those for whom He shed it. But this required great anguish and affliction on his part. Verse 23 says that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now I confess to you prior to preparing for this sermon, this was one of those texts that when I was reading in my daily devotions, going through the Bible, this verse, I was never quite certain what it was that was going on. I mean, what is wine mixed with myrrh anyway? Well, as it turns out, wine mixed with myrrh was a sedative. It was intended to dull the senses. It's being offered to the Lord Jesus to alleviate the pain and the suffering that he is about to endure. But he rejects it, you'll notice. He's going into this with his eyes wide open And he decides he's not going to take anything that would even take a little bit of the agony out of his death. Rather than drinking this cup of wine offered to him, he chooses to drink without any aid the cup of God's wrath. The wrath which should have been poured out upon me and upon you, believer. We know that Jesus was not enjoying this experience. On the contrary, remember back in chapter 14 when he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is here now about to drink that cup because he was obedient, because he loved his Father, and he loved us. And now we see him refusing to take a sip of the cup that might have diluted that experience that he was about to face. It's his Father's wrath instead that he chooses to drink down to the dregs with no help, no relief. He is doing this all on his own. Jesus 
is the only sinless, righteous sufferer in the Scripture. But we read the Old Testament and we realize that He is not the only righteous sufferer. The Hebrew Scripture are full of men who suffered for righteousness' sake. I'm sure we can all think of many examples. But just to name a few, Abel, who was murdered by his brother Cain, whose heart was full of hatred for him. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, whose jealousy had driven them to detest their sibling. Jeremiah, who we often call the weeping prophet, imprisoned and despised simply for preaching the word of God that his countrymen didn't want to hear. These holy men of old were not sinless like Jesus, but they were types of Jesus. They were pictures of him as they endured and suffered unjustly as he did. And they were faithful as they endured to the end, keeping their eyes on the Lord and ultimately keeping their eyes upon Christ himself as they trusted the promise of his future coming. One of those Old Testament saints looking forward to the coming of the Messiah was none other than Jesus' forefather, King David. And it is one of his prophetic psalms that we see fulfilled in verse 24, where Mark writes, They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Psalm 22, which offers a vivid picture of Christ's crucifixion, says in verses 16 through 18, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David, who wrote these words, was no stranger to persecution And he was no stranger to suffering unjustly. After all, much of the book of 1 Samuel is him fleeing from King Saul who had purposed in his heart to murder him, motivated out of his jealousy against him. Or his being forced into exile from Jerusalem as Absalom, his son, usurped the throne from him. But what about Jesus, the son of David? Was his suffering like King David's? Well, this is one of those situations where the answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that both were persecuted by evil people and suffered as righteous men, but no in the sense that David, for all his love for God and his law, was still a sinner. In fact, we know that some of David's suffering, not all of it, I want to be clear, but some of David's suffering was a consequence of his sins regarding Bathsheba and Uriah. Jesus, on the other hand, was not suffering for his own sins, but for ours. In fact, Jesus was suffering 
for David's adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. God poured out the just wrath that would have been poured out upon David for those wicked actions upon Christ on the cross. Jesus, for his part, was a stranger to sin. He had never even entertained a thought of hatred against a neighbor. He had never even given a lustful glance at a woman walking down the street. He was suffering as the ultimate righteous servant of God. King David could not have been our substitute because he could not offer up a pure sacrifice to God. He, like us, was blemished. But God, for our sake, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as Mark alludes to Psalm 22 here in the context, what is Jesus experiencing? Well, these cruel soldiers of Rome are dividing the spoils of their iniquitous acts. They're far from having any pity for this man who they're in the process of murdering, whom they have humiliated No, they're concerned about making sure that each one of them gets some of the clothes that they have stripped off of him. How cold. How cruel. Like people arguing about who gets what after a family member has recently died. Jesus is being crucified, and the soldier's main concern is getting what they want while the getting's good. Isn't this, beloved, a great example of how dark the hearts of men are without the light of Christ shining upon them. If they would have just turned their heads up towards Jesus, they would have seen the fulfillment of prophecy. The man who would offer them forgiveness and refuge if only they would have repented and believed. But no, right now they need to divvy up and steal his clothes, likely one of his few earthly possessions. Why are you here this morning, friend? Have you come to worship the risen Lord Jesus on his day with his people? Or are you like these Roman soldiers? Are you in the presence of Christ with no love or devotion to Him? Are you here in His presence simply to take what you want? This is a holy assembly. We have assembled in Jesus' name and He has promised us that when we do so, He is with us by His Spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul calls the gathered church the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he gives this warning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you, speaking to the church, are that temple. Why do I say this? 
to scare you from coming to church? No, not at all. But unbelieving friend, we are glad that you are here. We are glad that you are in one of the places in our community where you can hear the gospel preached to you, and we pray for the salvation of your soul. We love you. We'd love to talk with you. But if you are here to promote a false religious system, or if you are here to promote unbelief amongst our members, that is another matter entirely. If you are here and you wish to take people out of the church and into the lost world, that is something you will answer to God for. You cannot infiltrate one of his churches for nefarious purposes and expect to avoid his gaze and his judgment upon you. Or similarly, if you attend here and you simply want to take the benefits of our church's community, if you simply want to socialize, get support, meet pretty girls or whatever else, and you hear the gospel preached every week, you are in the presence of Christ's sacraments being administered. Perhaps you've even partaken of the supper yourself. And yet, you couldn't care less about Jesus. You haven't forsaken your sins. You've not clung to Him for refuge. You must know that God will hold you responsible for the light that you have willfully chosen to ignore. Do not neglect this salvation. Do not disregard Christ and keep your head down as you continue dividing up his garments. This is serious, friend. Lift up your head and behold Christ, the risen Christ, and behold him as your only hope. If this describes you this morning, friend, I pray you will talk to me or to Pastor Kaysen, or one of the other members of our church. Jesus saves sinners, and you are not beyond His mercy. But as we contemplate the cost at which Christ purchased forgiveness for repentant sinners, we come to verse 25, which says, It was the third hour when they crucified Him. Naturally, there are two things I want to bring attention to here. First, the time. By our reckoning, the third hour is 9 o'clock a.m. That is when Jesus was hung on the cross. But secondly, I want to spend some time drawing attention to crucifixion itself. What exactly was it? Well, the Roman philosopher Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The Encyclopedia Britannica, in its entry on crucifixion, says that usually the condemned man, after being whipped or scourged, dragged the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment where the upright shaft had already been fixed into the ground. 
Stripped of his clothing, either then or earlier at his scourging, he was bound fast with outstretched arms to the crossbeam or nailed firmly to it through the wrists. It then speaks of the cross beam being raised to um, the top of the beam that was already in the ground. And it says that a ledge was inserted about halfway up the shaft. And it says over the criminal's head was placed a notice stating his name and his crime. Death ultimately occurred through a combination of constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation as the body strained under its own weight. Now, even through that stale and academic language, I think we can all see through to the horror and barbarity that crucifixion was. It was simply a terrifying way to die. It was pure agony for the victim. I would invite you to consider alone just the experience of being forced down on a piece of wood. You know, it was rough and splintery when your body has already been beaten and bruised, is bloody and exposed. Having that sinking into you and then having nails driven into your hands. And then having the soldiers grab your legs, take them to the the bottom of the beam, and then nail your feet into it. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? I can't. And in keeping with custom, which the aforementioned encyclopedia article mentioned, the charge against Christ is placed over his head. Verse 27 says, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. What a strange crime to be accused of. What are we to make of those words? Well, as you may remember from our um, looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15 a couple weeks ago, you'll remember that any kind of a claim to kingship and authority was considered high treason by the empire. This was how the Jewish leaders had gotten Pilate to execute Jesus in the first place. The Romans wouldn't have been overly concerned about an internal Jewish religious squabble. Frankly, they really couldn't have cared less about those debates. That's why the Sanhedrin had charged Jesus with being a revolutionary, setting him up looking like he was a um, violent seditionist who was in opposition to Caesar. As they framed it, Jesus claiming to be the king of the Jews made him an enemy of the emperor. And that's why this seemingly odd charge is written against him. And yet we know from John's gospel that even this made the Sanhedrin angry. He records that the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Their hatred for Jesus was so fevered that they didn't even want that little shred of validity to his claim of being their rightful king being given to him. They're making a fuss about the charge above his cross. 
Pilate's choice of words and his refusal to change them probably indicates his desire to get under the religious leader's skin. Or Calvin says, to shame the Jewish nation. But I also believe that it reminds us of Pilate's reluctance to execute Jesus at all. He didn't want it to get to this point in the first place. And yet, here we are. And so this was the charge that was placed over Christ's head. But there was something else written and nailed to the cross. Do you see it? Well, you wouldn't have seen it if you had been standing there as Jesus hung on that cursed cross. But it was there, make no mistake. Brothers and sisters, it was the list of charges against you. All of your violations of the law of God. Hear the words of Paul the Apostle. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. And how did he do it? Nailing it to the cross. Your violations of the law, believer, not your violations of the laws of the Romans, your transgressions of the law of an infinitely eternal, holy God. Every time that you have coveted something that wasn't yours, every time you've lusted after someone, every time you've gossiped, every time you have disrespected your mother and father, every time you have lied, every time you've had sex outside of marriage, every time that you've gotten drunk. All of these things are offensive in the sight of God. They are disgusting to Him, and they earned you damnation. You were guilty. All the charges written against you were true. They earned you the wage of death, and God would have been perfectly righteous and just to have left us in our squalor and to have condemned us to an eternity in hell to pay back a debt that we could never repay, an infinitely good creator. But he took that record of debt that you could never pay, and he nailed it to Jesus' cross. And Jesus paid that debt in full. You have nothing left to pay. There is nothing left that you owe. Behold the love of God, church. Behold the loveliness of Christ, the spotless lamb who was slaughtered as if he had committed all of your sins. God treated him as if he had lived our lives, as it has been said before. 
How could you read this and not be moved to hate your sins? The very ones that Jesus had to suffer for like this. And furthermore, how could you read this and not be overwhelmed with joy that you are free? That you are in Christ, that you are not condemned, that you are not guilty anymore. To paraphrase John Calvin, the cross was the chariot that Christ the King mounted to triumph over his and our enemies. Satan can no longer stand before God and accuse you before him because justice was satisfied by Christ on that old rugged cross. And as our Lord suffered and died, he did so while being counted among sinners. Read verse 27. It says, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. He was sentenced and executed with the rabble. The only truly innocent man who ever lived was looked upon and treated like a common criminal. And he died the death of a criminal. Isaiah 53.12 says he was numbered with the transgressors, meaning that he was both seen as a transgressor by men and that God crushed him as if he was a transgressor. Treated him as a lawbreaker to save those under the law's curse. It has been said that there are honorable and dishonorable ways to die. In the military, for example, death by firing squad is considered a soldier's death. So it's honorable at least to that point. But hanging is a war criminal's death. Dishonorable. Well, crucifixion during this time was most definitely seen as a dishonorable way to die. Crucifixion was for the lowest of the low. But this was the shameful death which the Son of God chose to endure for us while being counted among the transgressors. What is man that you are mindful of him? David prays in Psalm 8. And the Son of of man that you care for him. And who are we, church, that the only begotten Son of God would choose to take to himself our nature with all of its frailties and live among us? He truly became one of us. Who are we that we are joint heirs with him? Brothers and sisters, doesn't that blow your mind? Us joint heirs with Jesus? What have we done to deserve that? Nothing. Who are we to share in Christ's inheritance? The scripture says he isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I'm sure that you all can probably think of plenty of reasons why you think he should be ashamed, but he isn't. B. 
because He has washed us in that precious blood that He spilt on the cross. He has made us a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. And He did so by being numbered with the transgressors to save transgressors like you and me. Now, when we look at the text, I don't want us to get distracted by this, but I do want to briefly address what many of you have probably already noticed. Now, here at the gathering, our translation for preaching and teaching is the English Standard Version. And we think it's an excellent translation of the Scripture. And of course, there are other excellent translations of the Scripture. But if you are reading from the ESV, you will see that your Bible goes from verse 27 to verse 29 in Mark 15. This also applies if you're using the NASB, the NIV, or most other modern translations. If, however, this morning you are reading from the King James Version or the New King James, there is a verse 28 in the text, which reads, And the Scripture was fulfilled, which saith, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Why is this verse absent in the ESV? Well, to put it simply, verse 28 is not found in the earliest or the most significant of the Western and Alexandrian manuscripts of Mark's gospel. It was most likely a later edition that wasn't originally written by Mark. These are issues that biblical textual scholars spend time looking at and working through and have done so for centuries. This shouldn't undermine, and I want to be clear on this point, should not undermine our confidence in the Bible, for which even an unbelieving scholar once said when he was referring to the New Testament that we have far more attestation and manuscript evidence for than any other book of antiquity. God promised us that He would preserve His Word and we believe Him. As Dr. James White has said, and I really think this is helpful, when we look at the New Testament, we're looking at a puzzle, a 1,000-piece puzzle, and we have 1,100 pieces to the puzzle. Meaning, we have all the original readings in the manuscript tradition, and praise God for that. We believe that everything that the apostles and the prophets and their associates wrote in the Scripture, we have, that it is in the manuscript tradition. But we have a few questions about those extra pieces to the puzzle, which ones fit in and which ones don't. And this is one of those cases, beloved, where there are some questions, and faithful men of God disagree about this particular issue. But church, I do want you to rest well and be confident that God has spoken, and we do have His Word. And in fact, when we think about the words of God, we actually come to an example in our text of the words of God being twisted and perverted by evil men. Let's continue reading. Look at verses 29 and 30. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! 
you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The Lord Jesus doesn't only suffer the pain and physical trauma of crucifixion, but also the taunts and insults from onlookers. Again, not unlike King David, who as he left Jerusalem was mocked just before the arrival of Absalom. But there's more going on here than just mockery, isn't there? There is also distortion and manipulation of Jesus' words. Now let's ask ourselves the question, did Jesus say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Well, to answer that question, let's go to John's gospel and look at chapter 2. In John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, the text says, The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So coming back to Mark 15, let's ask the question, did our Lord say these words? These words that are being hurled at him as an insult and derisive? Well, our Lord did say at least a form of these words that are being spoken back to him, but, and this is key, his meaning was not the meaning being assigned to them by the unbelieving Jews who were twisting his teachings in order to drag him through the mud. Remember just a few weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus' kangaroo court before the high priest, Mark said that some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is, not, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Again, The attempt is being made to paint Jesus like a Barabbas, like a violent revolutionary. But that's clearly a slanderous, ridiculous lie. But here are these passers-by, these onlookers, using the same words and hurling them as insults at Jesus as he suffers. Brothers and sisters, is there anything we can learn from this? Well, I believe there is. Are Jesus' words still misunderstood or abused in our day? Absolutely, they are. Sometimes purposely, sometimes mistakenly. But it happens all the time. Cult leaders like Mormonism's Joseph Smith have twisted the teachings of Jesus into saying that men can become gods if they live a righteous enough life. Popular prosperity preachers on TV, 
like Joel Osteen or Ken Copeland likewise take Christ's words and turn them into quasi-New Age materialistic nonsense, preaching a Jesus who is waiting around hoping that you'll use faith-filled words that will allow Him to make you rich. Then there are the so-called liberal Christians who are not Christians at all, like Bishop Michael Curry, who may have all the trappings of ancient Christianity, but have completely abandoned the gospel. The kinds of churches that have sermons about climate change and social justice and say nothing about sin and redemption. Dr. Al Mohler has wisely said the gospel is about repenting from sin, not celebrating it. And yet, liberals do that very thing, and they twist the very words of Christ to accomplish that wicked end. They take Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, and they make it say that all religions are paths to God. It doesn't matter. We just need to love one another. A dangerous twisting indeed. But I trust it's easy for most of us, isn't it, to point those things out. But do we, as believers, ever mistakenly quote the words of Christ? For example, how many times has a well-meaning Christian said, judge not as if Christ was commanding us to never judge anyone's sins, when in reality Christ was commanding us not to hypocritically pass judgment on someone else's sin? Or how about when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Haven't many true Christians misunderstood and misused these words to mean that believers should literally hear the voice of God rather than the true interpretation that Christ's elect hear His voice when the gospel is proclaimed and that He guides His people, His sheep, by His Word and His Spirit? What's my point in all this? Well, my point is this, beloved. As followers of Christ, we must all heed the words of Christ. We must take the words of Christ very seriously. We desire, don't we, to rightly understand and apply Jesus' teachings to our lives. And how, beloved, do we do this? By studying His words, praying over them, reading them, reflecting on them, delighting ourselves in the Scripture. We grow in our knowledge of God when we do the hard work of mining all of the riches that are contained in God's Word. Not that we'll ever arrive at a perfect knowledge or perfect theology. On this side of heaven, on this side of eternity, all of us will have blind spots and errors for our whole lives. But that being said, We must study and seek after the truth. We shouldn't be content with superficial, surface-level readings of the Bible, superficial understandings of the Bible, when we lack a true and weighty understanding of it. 
We are called and commanded by God to grow in the faith, to mature in our stature before the Lord. Let me ask you, dear believer, what is holding you back from growing into a deeper understanding of Christ's words? Are you afraid that you can't understand them deeply and so you just don't try? Or are you spending more time on Facebook and TikTok than you spend in the Bible simply because it's just so much easier to indulge the flesh rather than to sow to the Spirit and to feed the Spirit? Brothers and sisters, if that is you this morning, you must recognize the treasure, inestimable treasure that we have in the Scripture being readily available to us. And you must recognize your duty and your privilege to search and study them. Remember that you have pastors who would love to help you do that. And you have the Spirit of Christ Himself dwelling within you. A surface level of understanding Jesus' words led to them being twisted by these wicked men in our text as they reviled Him. And would that we, dear believers, those who love Jesus, never misuse His words. We have the privilege of having access to them in our language whenever we want. We can even read it for free on the internet if we want. God's Word is one of the chief means He uses to sanctify us. He makes us more like Jesus when we read Jesus' teachings. So do not neglect such a wonderful means of grace that we have been given. Our God has spoken. He reveals Himself to us in His Word by His Spirit. Why would we not want to spend time delving into that? The scoffers in our passage, of course, rejected all of that. They rejected the grace of Christ and they displayed their ignorance of His mission and His identity. But of all the men in Judea, you would expect the religious leaders, those men who had spent their whole lives, presumably, studying the Hebrew Scriptures to understand who Jesus was. And yet they were the very ones who orchestrated his murder. Look at their behavior starting in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he could not save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. These so-called holy men, so proud of their learning and their outward righteousness, who so adored the love and the praise they got from the people, who no doubt were able to sound very reverent towards God in their public prayers or in their sermons in the synagogue. Mark pictures them here cackling and bragging amongst themselves for the unspeakable evil that they have committed. 
these pompous, arrogant hypocrites looking on and laughing at the murder of the incarnate God that they claimed to be servants of. Laughing at the death of the Son of God who they claimed to love so much. Truly, the words of the prophet Ezekiel are rightly applied to them. Turn with me, please, to the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 1, the prophet says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Now, look at what the Lord says in verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Dear brothers and sisters, God did seek out his sheep and he did it himself just as he promised he would. 
the second person of the Holy Trinity. God was manifest in the flesh. He became one of us. He lived, died, and rose again for us. God walked among us. The Lord Jesus is the true shepherd of God's sheep. The good shepherd. And Christ tells us the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's us. We are his flock who had wandered every which way. He came to seek and to save us. Christ died to save us, and by His Spirit, He has called us out of the world to be nourished by Him as our shepherd, to be protected by Him, to be cherished by Him. We heard His voice and we responded to His call. Not because we chose Him, but because He chose us to be His flock. And we were granted new hearts and new ears that heard His voice when the gospel was proclaimed to us. There is no greater love, Jesus tells us, than to lay down your life for your friends. And that is the very thing He did as the false and abusive shepherds of Israel looked on and mocked the good shepherd suffered and poured out his blood to save us. And what's so ironic is that the chief priest challenges to him reveal their ignorance and they're so utterly backwards. They say that he saved others and cannot save himself when in reality he is dying to save others. They say that um, they want him to come down from the cross to prove that he's the Messiah and the King of Israel. And yet, he is not coming down because he is Israel's King and Messiah. He was fulfilling the words of Isaiah 53. And I would ask you to finally turn there this morning as we read that text together. We understand that this was not Jesus' life being taken from him. This was Jesus giving his life. This was a willing sacrifice on his part. And in Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet has a vision of the coming Messiah. And he writes these famous words beginning in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hallelujah. Are you grateful this morning that he is making intercession for you, for your transgressions, that your iniquities were laid upon him? God promises him that he would see his offspring, that he would prolong his days. We are those offspring. We are those people who have been given to him as a reward for his suffering obedience. Do you love Christ, church? How often do you think about Christ? How often do you meditate on what He has done for you? And how we can't even begin to start to kind of understand the level and the deepness of the love that He has for us to have endured what He did for us. To call us His brothers and sisters. Christ truly is the center of everything. The universe is held together in Him. We consist and hold fast in Him. He rules over everything. 
And He has freed us from the chains that we were in. Our bondage to Satan, to our own fallen sinful desires. He has removed them from us. He has made us children of God. He has opened our eyes so that we could see Him for who He is. But the priests were blinded. They couldn't see. They couldn't see how this was necessary, but it was necessary for the Lord's suffering servant to pour out his soul to death to make an offering so that we could be accounted righteous. Far from disproving his Messiah's ship, Jesus' gruesome death on the cross reveals to us beautifully and powerfully that he is the Messiah whom all those generations of believing Israelites were waiting for. The one stricken and afflicted because of our sins, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The chief priests gave their mock challenges so that Jesus could prove himself to be the Messiah. But we know that nothing would have convinced them because we know his own resurrection three days later did not convince them. But oh, how the Son of God must have despised this shame, these taunts, this humiliation. Our passage today ends with the words, those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. Now, Luke in his gospel tells us that one of these robbers repents and trusts Jesus. And that's a beautiful story that all of us are very fond of, and rightly so. But Mark doesn't record that detail. And I think the reason is that Mark is drawing attention to and emphasizing in his narrative how lonely and hated Jesus was on the cross. Everyone is making fun of him. The crowds, the religious leaders, even the other men being executed are mocking him. Truly, he was despised and rejected. Truly, he was not esteemed. Mark writes his account of the crucifixion as he does to highlight this aspect of Jesus' passion, that Jesus was doing this alone, that he was reviled by people all around him. John tells us that he himself, meaning John and Jesus' mother Mary, were at the foot of the cross. Mark not mentioning that detail doesn't mean it didn't happen. This isn't a, a contradiction. But I think that we can all see, having walked through this, that Mark simply had a different focus when he was crafting his gospel. He is emphasizing Upon or how upon the cross, Jesus was surrounded by hatred and cruel jesting when He is the one who in heaven was surrounded by the ceaseless praise of saints and angels. All these should have been falling down in worship before Him. Isaiah the prophet saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Son of God. He was surrounded not by mockery, but by adoration. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That is the awe and the reverence due to Christ. The Apostle John teaches us that this vision that Isaiah had was of Christ prior to His incarnation. That is the reverence due to the eternal Word, the only begotten Son of God, the glory that He shared with the Father in eternity past. But the Son humbled Himself, taking on the form of a servant, entering into His own creation to save an undeserving people, allowing men He created to nail Him to the cross. Has your pride ever been hurt? Have you ever felt like you didn't get what you were owed? or that you weren't treated right? Well, as we prepare to enter a time of prayer and reflection, consider Jesus. No one has ever been treated more unfairly, more unjustly by men than He was. Even when you have been wronged, deep down you know in your heart that you yourself have wronged others in the past. But Christ never wronged anyone. All He did for His entire life was love God with all His heart and love His neighbor as Himself. And this was how He was treated for it. Dear believer, it may sound trite, overly sentimental to say Jesus should be our most precious possession. But it's true. He is our most precious possession and He will continue to be so on into eternity. He is simply magnificent. Altogether lovely. Amazing. Glorious. All of history guided by the wise providence of God like a symphony led up and crescendoed to Jesus pouring out Himself upon that cursed cross. He is the focal point of history. So should He not be the focal point of our lives, church? We will continue through Jesus' passion next week as He gives up His Spirit. But for now, I close by exhorting you to praise God that we are in the midst of another symphony. God is working all things today according to the counsel of His will. And everything is leading up and crescendoing to the return of our Lord Jesus. Coming back in triumph. When He comes back, oh, there will be no mockery. There will only be a bowing in humble recognition of who He is and what He has accomplished. All glory be to Christ our King. Let's pray.
our Father who is in heaven. Lord God, each one of us this morning could sit down and we could take a vast inventory of our lives and we would not be able to number the sins that we have committed against you. Lord, even on what we would consider our best days, we know that we do not measure up to your standard of perfection. Father, you would have had no wickedness or injustice in you had you condemned all of us to the fires of hell. Father, we give you thanksgiving this morning that you did not do that. That you sent Christ. And Lord, that you upon the cross, treated him as if he was the one who had committed all of those sins that we can think about and remember this morning. Oh, Father, we are such a blessed and privileged people that you have removed our sin from us, that we are able to stand in the courtroom of heaven, as it were, and that you, as a righteous judge, can declare us righteous and not guilty. But, O oh Lord, we know that we were without hope for that blessed pronouncement to be given to us, and that we owe everything to the one who died for us the one who rose again for us, the one who we know that even today, at this very moment, is standing at your right hand. And Father, we cannot see him right now, but oh, how we long to. How we long to look upon him, to see him exalted with those holes in his hands and in his feet those marks of the price of our redemption. Oh God, we, we reflect this morning that there is no greater love than that. There is nothing greater for us to think about, to study, to meditate on, or to orient our lives around than Christ our Lord. Father, we are a weak and needy people and we are in need of Him every day. And so we pray that You would help us to cherish Him, to look to Him always, that He would be the source of our joy, our strength, our gladness, no matter what is going on around us that we would be able to have our countenance lifted knowing that we belong to Him and that there is nothing that can separate us from Him. That He is our shepherd. That by His rod and staff that He is watching over us and He will not allow us to be lost. We give you thanks for Him 
for his work. And we do so by offering up this prayer to you in his name, the name that is exalted above all names. Amen.